So we are in the middle of our relationship series. It's called Relationship Goals. We are doing for the month of February. Uh, today I'll be talking about healthy relationships. And then next week we're actually going to have our panel that we've been talking about. We're really excited about it. It's something a little different here at New Hope. We don't, we haven't, I don't know if we've ever done this before, but it's going to be great. We're going to have a panel up here. We're going to answer questions that you guys have texted in over these last few weeks. Um, they're going to have the number up on the screen at some point uh, off and on today. And feel free to text in questions you have about any questions about relationships. And we're going to compile those questions this week, and we're going to do everything we can, the best of our ability, to answer those questions that hopefully will bless you, encourage you, and spur you on in your relationship with the Lord and with others. So, uh, so please take advantage of that. We're probably going to take questions up until the middle of the week this week, and then we're going to take the last few days and compile those and get all together. It's going to be a lot of fun. So look forward to, to that next week. I hope you come back for that. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking to you about healthy relationships. How many of you know that God has called us and designed us and wired us for healthy relationships? Amen. We are, relationships are a, a, a huge, huge part of our life. Whether you realize it or not, we are all in relationships all over the place. Some of them we'd rather not be in probably, but uh, nevertheless, we are in them. And God has designed it that way. He's called us to it. And not only has he called us to healthy relationships, he's called us to having deep intimate relationships, not just with our spouse, but with, with, with other people. Intimacy is a matter of just um, submitting to each other, working together and sharing our heart and opening ourselves up to other people. That's God's desire for each and every one of us. Uh, in fact, I have a, a verse that I've been sharing each week that is kind of a banner verse for this month, and I want to share it again. It's in Ecclesiastes 4 and verses 9 to 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, as I've been reading this verse quite a bit over the last month, and something really jumped out at me this week that... Uh, you know, just hasn't in the past. And, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit will do that. He'll illuminate something to you, even though you've read it a thousand times. And uh, what jumped out of me this week was the word pity. It says in there that if someone falls into a pit, that that person is to be pitied if they don't have someone to help them out. And that actually says a lot, you know, because that pit, that could be a proverbial pit. That could be a metaphorical pit, you know, emotional pit. Uh, a lot of us have probably experienced emotional pits that we've been in. And uh, what, the, what the word of God is saying here is that if you have no one to help you, if you don't have a relationship with someone, people in your life that can help you get out of these pits in your life, then you are to be pitied. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be pitied. I don't want to be that person that finds myself in a pit with no one to help me out and no one to be able to, that I can lean on, that no one, and, and can, can know my heart and can help walk me through situations in life. Because, uh, you know, we all know you're obviously, we're all going to go through situations in life. Jesus promised us that we're going to have trouble in this world. Now, he said we can take heart because he's overcome the world. But as long as we're here, we're going to have stuff coming up in life. We all know that. And so he has set it up for us that we would have relationship with people that can help us. He says two are better than one. It's better that we are working together, that we are opening ourselves up to relationship. And we are not holding people at bay. And we're not having those walls up that don't allow people to come into our lives in a deep level uh, or in a deeper level. Than, than just surface. You know, if all you talk about with all of your relationships is sports and the weather, then you're not really opening yourself up in relationship to really make yourself vulnerable. But God's desire for us is that we would be vulnerable. And, that, and the reason he wants that is not just so we can be vulnerable and we can have a good time together. It's because we're going to have trouble in life and we need those relationships to help build us up. 
And some of you may say, well, you know, I have God. That's all I need. You know, it's me and Jesus. We're just, we're just living life. And, and that's good. And he should be our first relationship. And that's what I've been preaching over these last few weeks is that our pr- first priority should definitely be our relationship with Jesus. No question about it. But there's a reason in Genesis 2:18 that God said that uh, it was not good for man to be alone. Because at that point, Adam only had a relationship with God, right? And so he said, God saw that and said, this isn't good. Man should be in a relationship with other people. And, uh, and so that's God's plan for us. And so we are designed for that. And, you know, I, I, some of us would say, if it's, if it's so important to God, if God really wants that for us, why is that so difficult? Why is it so hard to have really good, healthy relationships in life? You know, uh, I think all of us would say we probably have had some good relationships. You may have some now, but it just seems like there's always, there's always those relationships that are just a struggle, you know, and there, there's, there's those seasons we go through in life where we feel like we just want to pull back. Or, or we're just tired of being hurt, or we just don't have the time to really invest. And, and if this is something that God wants for us so badly, why is it something that can be such a struggle for us? And, and my answer to that would be, well, first of all, I don't think relationships aren't really taught in school. You know, there's no class in school that just teaches you how to have a relationship. I mean, that'd be pretty cool if it, if it was. I would have taken that instead of history. But we didn't have that. And so we're kind of forced to learn it on our own. You know, we're supposed to be taught how to have a relationship by our parents. You know, we're, me and Joy are teaching our kids every day how to be in relationship and how to, how to be a good friend and how to love others and, and all of that. It's not something that we're innately born with, just the ability to do. But on top of that, you have the fact that relationships, if it's so important to God, then we also know it's important to somebody else. It's important to your enemy. And it's very, very high on his hit list. Relationships are at the top of the enemy's hit list. His, one of his biggest desires is for you to not have healthy, thriving, deep relationships. And there's a reason that when, when people are polled and yet they ask what the number one problem is in life, by far and away, the number one problem in life is relationships. Almost all of, almost all of our problems are based on bad things in relationships. So that tells me the enemy's coming against us and he's not wanting us to have these healthy relationships because he knows that if we are effective, if we're, if we're in good relationship, if our relationships are good, that we're going to be more effective against his kingdom. And he doesn't want that. And so he's designed, he's, he puts roadblocks in our way all the time to try to keep us from being able to thrive in our relationships and just try to keep those surface level relationships and, and kind of stay reserved and not trust and, uh, and not open ourselves up to people. That's his desire for each one of us. And so what he does is he, he tries to, to these roadblocks, um, the, what they do is they cause toxic situations in our relationships. You probably heard the word, you know, a toxic person or a toxic relationship. And what that basically is, is just toxic is just poison. And we, there's, there's a lot of poison in our relationships. There's things that poison our relationships. And those are, these are the tools of the enemy that he would like to use in our life. So what I'd like to do today is give you three things, three toxic thoughts that kill relationships, okay? And then hopefully give you the, the solution, the antidote to that poison so that we can thrive in our relationships. And I'm not, I'm not just doing it just so I can, just so we can talk about things that make relationships tough. I wanna do it because I believe that God wants us to uh, expose these things so that we can be set free, amen? How many of you know God is, he wants to set us free. He doesn't want us to be bound up. He wants us to be free from these things that bind us up. He, he came and paid the price so that we could be free. And so we're gonna expose them today and, and we're gonna walk out of here free. Hallelujah and praise the Lord. Uh, let me read a quick verse though first before I get into that. In Romans 12, verses four to five, it says, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So this is basically saying, 
Paul is saying like, listen, just as your body has many members, you know, he talks in Corinthians too about how there's many parts to one body. You know, he says, your eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And your hand can't say to your feet that I don't need you because we all need to work together. Uh, our body needs to work together. Well, that's what he's talking about here in the body of Christ. We are, we are all one body with many parts. And in the, the end of verse five there, he says, uh, and each member belongs to all the others. So we in the body of Christ are designed to belong to each other. Do you guys know that? We're not designed to just be individualistic and doing our own thing. We're designed to be together. That's the way God has ordained it for us. And, but again, yet it's always diff, it's difficult. It's, it's so many people all the time, I hear it all the time. I've had the only, my own issues in my own life of just relationships that have just caused so much hurt and agony to where we just feel like, is it even worth it? And, uh, you know, did you ever notice that it's never hard in relationships to be selfish and narcissistic and, and fearful? Those things are never difficult. That, man, those are, those are, there's plenty of those ready to come into your life, you know, in, in all kinds of situations. It's because that's, those are the roadblocks the enemy sets up for us. He puts those in our path so that we, um, so we embrace those and, and walk in bondage in our relationships. So we're going to get, we're going to talk about the three things that will set, that destroy us and the ones that will, and what will set us free from those. The three toxic attitudes that destroy healthy relationships. And the first one is pride and selfishness. Now I know pride and selfishness aren't necessarily the same thing, but I lump them together because I believe they work hand in hand in our relationships very closely. These are killers in our relationship. And, uh, I know some of you might say, well, what's the big deal? You know, everybody's got a little pride. Everybody's got a little selfishness in their life. You know I mean? Who, who hasn't really wanted to go eat where they wanted to eat when they were with a group of people and kind of voice their opinion and been a little selfish at times, you know, or, or, uh, when I, when I think of pride, you know, I think of, um, you know, every man thinks he's the best driver on the road, you know, men always think they're really good drivers and have some pride in that, you know, and they, they always want to drive and let their girlfriend or their wife or their other friends just sit in the back seat. I'll take care of this, you know, cause, cause I can get us there on time. Cause I know how to do this, you know? So there's, there's that kind of pride, which is, you know, it's, it's a little more superficial, but what I'm talking about here is the pride that, that comes into our relationships that causes us to feel like we're better than everybody else, you know, or we have giftings or, or blessings that God's given us. And we, we kind of think we deserve those things, you know, like we think pride is basically thinking more highly of yourself than you should. And what that does in relationship is it causes selfishness, which obviously pushes people away from us. I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't really love to be really close and, and, and sum, submit myself to a friend or anybody in my life that's, that's really selfish. Because after a while, that just gets old, right? We don't necessarily love to be around selfish people. And, uh, and that comes from pride of thinking that, you know, what I want is more important than what you want. And this, is, this can be subtle in our relationships, but what it does, it comes in and it destroys it. It destroys that intimacy, that depth, that, that working together type of relationship that we're talking about, not just happen to having the superficial aspect of the relationship. And in James uh, chapter four, now how many of you guys know James said it the way it was? He didn't sugarcoat anything. If you don't want to fall under conviction, just, I don't know if you should read James very often. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful book. It's short. I, I read it a lot because it always does convict me and I, I feel like I need it a lot. So in James 4, uh, verse 6, the second part of verse 6, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, we've all heard that verse before. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And we think of that and we, and, and we can actually quote it and, you know, we think it's a good verse. And it is a good verse. But there, we need to be very, very careful with this verse and look at it for what God is saying here. Because when it says God opposes the proud, that, that word opposes there means to stand against. 
Okay? So when you break this verse down and you look at it and you think, okay, God stands against those that are proud. Okay? That makes me think, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? God, the maker of the heaven and earth, the guy that holds the earth in the palm of his hand is actually going to stand against me. Even if I'm saved, you know, James is talking to save people here. So even if I'm saved, if I'm harboring pride in my life, if I'm, if I'm working in pride and let pride infect all my relationships, and I think I'm better than everybody else, even if I'm saved, it's saying that God is opposing me. He's literally standing against me, keeping me from getting past him, like a bouncer at a club. And God's the kind of bouncer, you're not getting past him if he doesn't want you to get past him, right? And he literally stands against me. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to get on my knees and say, God, whatever pride is in my life, root it out. Because I don't want you standing. I, I got enough people standing against me. I sure don't want my God standing against me. Amen. Now, I know this isn't a real popular verse that we want to, you know, they don't write songs about this. You know, I've never sang a worship song. Said, oh, God, you stand against me. You know, that was brutal. Um, but but we, don't, we don't sing stuff like that because that's not fun. It's not ooey gooey. It's not, you know, we talk about Jesus's love. You know, we're all, but we're not hippies, right? It's, it's not the 60s. We understand that the truth of the word is the truth of the word. And if it says God opposes the proud, then that tells me, okay, I want to take notice of this. And I want to stand and I want to make sure there's no pride in my life. And I can tell you this verse has, has changed my life because I, I read it constantly because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly confident person. And there is a fine line between confidence and pride, as you guys all know. Um, and I, I, don't, I think God gives us confidence. We should be confident. But my confidence is not in myself. But if I'm not careful, it can be. And so I'm constantly going back to God saying, God, if there's any pride in me, I mean, less of me, more of you. I mean, do whatever you have to do to to make less of me and more of you in my life. Whatever you have to do, Lord, I don't care what you have to do. I don't want to be humiliated, but I want you to do whatever you have to do to make sure that any root of pride in my life is gone, is out. And keep keep rooting it out. Keep weeding it out. Do what you have to do. Because the beauty of this verse, the first part that's so scary where he says that he opposes the proud. The second part is one of the most glorious phrases in the whole Bible. It says he gives grace to the humble. What a wonderful, wonderful statement. As as harsh and strong as him opposing the proud is, saying he gives grace to the humble, that's the opposite, the literal opposite. Instead of him standing there and guard and not letting you pass, not only is he just not standing in your way and getting out of the way, he's actually coming and getting you and saying, okay, you're humble. I'm going, to, I, I'm going to use my grace, which the grace of God is actually power for us. You know, Paul said he asked God to take the thorn from his side. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. So grace that God gives us is actually the power he gives us to live for him. So he's saying in this, not only am I not going to stand in your way, I'm going to give you the power you need to live the life that I've called you to live and to make you effective and fruitful in your life. If you will humble yourself before me. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to humble myself before my God. Amen. Anybody can get excited about that? Knowing that he's going to give us the power we need. Amen. I want that power that God gives us. Grace is not just not getting what we deserve. It's the next step. It's God saying, not, not only am I not going to stay in your way, I'm going to be everything you need. You know, great. That's what grace is for us. And if we will give ourselves to him. We can trust that he's going to do that for us. So I don't want any pride in my life to get in the way of my relationships. And when, when you understand that concept, like for me, it just helps me in all of my relationships. Like I don't, I don't have to be better than you. I don't have to be smarter than you. I don't have to be more educated than you. I don't have to be richer than you. I don't have to have nicer stuff than you. I don't have to have anything because I'm not comparing myself to you. I want to be here. I want to submit myself to you. 
and I want to be, do life with you and, and build relationship with you. And I want to do it in a way of humility because I know if I'm humble that I can trust that God's going to give me the power I need to live the life he wants me to live and to thrive in my relationships. And so we can't let pride come in and have its way in our relationships. The, the very next verse in James 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, now here, here's a little secret that I hope all of you know, but we are all submitting to something. Every one of us. Uh, you, you, may, you may have got saved, but you, you kind of feel like you have a hard time releasing everything to God. Like, you know, I, I do want salvation. I understand what I need to be saved and I want that, but there's areas of my life I'm not willing to give God. You know, I can't, I can't give you this. I need this. I can't trust you with my, my finances. I can't trust you with my marriage. I can't trust you with whatever it may be that, that you're just not willing to give to God. Well, when you do that and you're not surrendering that to him, you're actually surrendering it to the devil because you're playing right into his hands. You know, we were just singing that song a minute ago. I surrender. I surrender. Jesus, have your way in me. I'm singing that song and I'm thinking, whoo, I hope we know what we're singing because that's no joke. If we're surrendering to him, that means we are submitting ourselves to him. We're giving him all that we are. Pastor Bowen just said, like, he doesn't want leftovers. He ain't taking the hors d'oeuvres. He's not taking a, a, a little tinfoil swan full of lobster meat home. He's not that guy. He's the main course. And he wants to be the main course or he's not going to be anything in our life. That's what he wants. And this verse says that submit yourself to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You know, we love to quote the, the last part of that, resist the devil and he'll flee. And what we oftentimes leave off the first part that says submit to God, that tells me that to resist the devil, for him to actually flee from you, you have to do the first part too. If you're not surrendered to God and you try to resist the devil, he doesn't have to flee. Now that, that's, that's not a fun worship song either, but it's the truth. We cannot negate the first part of that verse. If we're not surrendered to him, the devil knows his rights. The devil has rights. You guys know that, right? Like the day's coming where he's going to be gone, thrown in the pit, and we don't have to worry about him anymore. But until that day comes, he's got rights and he knows it. And there's a structure, there's a heavenly structure that God has set up. And the only thing that makes him flees when we resist him, when we're submitted to God. So we can't just skirt over that first part and say, I'm just, you know, I'm not submitted to him in this area. I'm not willing to give him this area of my life, but yet I don't want the enemy to have it either. So I'm going to resist him and he'll have to flee. Uh Uh-uh. He doesn't have to flee. He laughs at us when we resist him if we're not surrendered to God. And that's, that's just the way, that's the way the system works. I hate to say system, but that's the way it works for us. But the beauty is that when we surrender to him, like we're surrendering to the guy that can give us everything we need. We're surrendering to the one that can give us that grace that will empower us to live the life that he wants us to live and that he's called us to live. So it's actually, we're surrendering to like, in the best way possible to this flawless God that loves us so much that he actually came and died for us. So there, it's a win for us. We just have to be willing to resist our pride and resist that selfishness and not lay that down for him to be able to get that. So in Ephesians 5.21, Paul actually says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So not only are we called to submit to our God, we're called to submit to one another. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm supposed to submit to this person, this person is supposed to submit to this person. We're all submitting to each other. It means we're opening ourselves up to each other. We're being vulnerable with each other. We're saying, listen, I'm inviting you into my life. I'm inviting you into the deep places in my life and I want to go into the deep places in your life. And now it doesn't mean that we have to be that way with every single person. Not, we don't need to be going around just airing our dirty laundry with everybody that wants to hear it. That's not what this is about, but it's about having a heart and an attitude of, I want to, I want to put myself in a relationship. I want to make myself vulnerable and I want to submit to you. Now that.
that's easy to do. Like even in our nature, that's not necessarily easy to do. And that's why three verses earlier, Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. Now, it's, it's not a coincidence that he talks about being filled with the spirit before he talks about submitting to one another. Nothing in the Bible is a coincidence. We all agree to that, right? There's nothing random. It just didn't so happen that we put verses in certain positions. This is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then we can submit ourselves to one another. So it's imperative that we are filled with the Spirit. It's imperative that we are living our life submitted to the Holy Spirit, allowing him to fill us and work through us or in us and through us to give us the ability to be able to step out and trust and, and build relationship with others and making ourselves vulnerable in spite of what's going, what happens sometimes. We all know when we make ourselves vulnerable, we're setting ourselves up and, and making it to where we can get hurt. But if we're filled with the Spirit, it's not that we're okay with that, but we're willing to take the risk. And we're willing to, we know that if, if somebody does hurt us, that God will still work in that situation as well. And we continue to trust because our faith is not necessarily in the person, it's in our God. And so we can walk in that and know that we can have victory in that. Okay, so I need to move on. So we're not here till two o'clock. Uh, the, the next one is resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness. This is the next toxic thought that, uh, that destroys our relationships. And I use all three of those words because they're, they're pretty much interchangeable. Uh, I like the word unforgiveness, but I don't even know for sure if that's a word, but it's a lack of forgiveness in our life, right? We harbor bitterness. And, uh, you know, this has been an issue since the very, very first relationship. You know, Adam and Eve on the earth and everything was going well. And then all of a sudden they ate the fruit and, and, uh, Adam was hiding from God, you know, and God found him and said, why were you hiding? And Adam said, well, I was scared cause I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And he said, well, uh, uh, you know, kind of stuttered around and God finally got to the bottom of it. Adam said, well, it was that woman you gave me. She, she ate the fruit and she gave me some and I ate it too. And he totally threw her under the bus and then ran her over about four times, you know? And, uh, but that was, I mean, you see his resentment in that conversation with God. He's saying, it was the woman, you know, and, and it, obviously there was some unforgiveness there. Now we don't know exactly what happened after that. If they, I'm, I assume they reconciled and, and, uh, and came to an agreement on all of that, but nevertheless, it started at the very beginning, the first relationship, and it affects so many countless relationships ever since then. Unforgiveness is something that is so prevalent in so many relationships in our lives, whether it's a spouse or a, a child or a parent or a cousin or a, a pastor or a friend or coworker, boss, there, it's just, it's all over the place. It's, it, it is so, it, the unforgiveness does not, not affect anyone. Everyone is affected in some way by unforgiveness um, where they've had to deal with it. Not that we're necessarily harboring it, but where we've had to make a conscious decision to forgive. And this is a, a huge tool of the enemy in our lives, to keep us in our relationships, to keep us from thriving in our relationships, because that's exactly what it does. We, we sometimes believe the lie that, well, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm bitter against, uh, you know, my dad. Cause he, he did these things when I was a kid, he cheated on my mom and, you know, and he abandoned us and I, I'm bitter towards him. But you know, it's just that everybody else I'm good with, you know, but you have this, if anybody mentions his name, you know, you kind of feel your heart rate going up a little bit. And, and, uh, and we think that it doesn't really affect us because, we, we rationalize it and we, we compartmentalize it. But I'm going to read you a verse that, that tells us the exact opposite of that. And it is in Matthew 18, 
verses 21 to 35. It's lengthy, so, so stick with me here. I'm going to read it. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, now this story, I'm going to break it up into two sections. The beginning of this, this parable where the, the master called in the debts and wanted the servant to pay the debts, okay? This was a huge debt that would, it, the, the fact that the servant asked for time to pay the debt off is laughable because there's no way if he had a thousand lifetimes, he could have paid off this debt. And the master knew this. And so it says he had pity on him and said, okay, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to just extend it and, and give you more time. I'm actually going to cancel it. I'm going to cancel this debt that you could never pay. There was no reason for the master to do that. He didn't have to do that. He wasn't obligated to do that. He was compelled to do it because he had pity on him, because he, he had compassion on him and saw the need that was there and that he was never going to be able to meet that need unless he canceled that debt. So he said, I'm going to go ahead and do it. This is the gospel. This is the gospel story for each and every one of us. We have a debt that we could have never paid. The debt in this parable is sin. And we had, we had sin that we could have never paid off. There was no way for us to live good enough to ever pay off this, the debt of sin that we have towards our master and towards our king. And so rather than just letting the sins pile up to where you know, we kept trying to, to pay it off but could never get ahead because we would just keep replenishing that pile, the master says, you know what? I'm going to make a way. I'm going to cancel that debt completely for you. And he forgave us of all of, his, of our sins by sending Jesus to come and die on a cross for our sins, taking the pain and punishment that we deserved on himself so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Amen. So that's the, that's the salvation story there. And so what, what, what he goes into after that is he says, okay, so now there's this, this servant that had just been forgiven. That's you and me. We've just been forgiven. And he's gone to somebody else that, that has sinned against him, that owes him and instead of forgiving his sin, he says, no, I'm not going to forgive it. And he says, it chokes him and he throws him in jail. And the master gets the word of this. And he says, he calls him and he says, you wicked servant. After what I just did for you, I forgave you this mountain of debt, of sin that I forgave for you. You got this little tiny pile over here of sin. You couldn't forgive it of your brother or your sister. And so he threw him in jail and said that he had to stay in jail until he would pay back all that he owed. And then the last verse there is the one that'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up because this doesn't, another, another verse that we don't, wouldn't sing worship songs about. 
It says, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This, this is another area where the enemy knows how the system works better than we do sometimes. The enemy knows basically what is happening here is that when we withhold forgiveness from anyone in our life for whatever they've done and for how many times they've done it to us. And, and uh, let me stop here. This is not belittling what has happened to you. Okay. In a room this size, there are people here that have had some horrific things that have happened to you. No question about it. It doesn't belittle what has happened to you, but what it does is it's saying for this mound, mound of debt that has been canceled out for you, you do not have the right to withhold forgiveness of any debt that anyone has ever done to you because compared to what you did to Jesus, it pales in comparison. No matter what has happened to you, Jesus actually took a a beating of epic proportions and hung on a cross. And while he's on the cross, hanging there dying, he says, Father, forgive them. He forgave you and me from the cross. And I know, you know, it's easy for us to think, oh, that happened 2000 years ago. I would have never done that. Let me tell you something. We might as well have been pounding the nails in his wrist and in his feet. We might as well have been the one spitting on him. You might as well have created that crown of thorns and smashed it on his head. You might as well have speared him in his side because it was, it was the same thing. It was not the people that did this. It was the sin of the world that put him on that cross. And you and me have that same sin. And so for what he has forgiven us from, he says, I will not allow you to make a mockery of what I did for you by withholding forgiveness for anybody else. He won't allow it. And he, again, he's not belittling what has happened to you. But what he's saying is from what you've been forgiven from, you, if you withhold, what you're saying is what I did for you isn't enough. And he, won't, he can't do it. And, and he literally says that he has, in, in this version, it says that the, the, he handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be paid back all he owes. Now, if you just read that quickly, it's easy to think, oh man, now so this guy really has to pay back that you know, trillion dollars back to the master. That's not what this is. The, the, that debt was canceled. You can't uncancel a debt. The debt that was owed was for him to extend forgiveness to his fellow servant. So for him to get out of prison and stop being tortured, some versions say tormented, all he has to do is forgive that other servant. Now, we don't know what happened because he doesn't go on beyond this, but hopefully he had that revelation. And while he was being tormented, he said, you know, this, this is getting old. I don't need to be tormented anymore. I'm gonna go ahead and forgive that small little debt this guy has. And he was out and he got out of jail. And so for us, some of us are being tormented Some of us are literally living in torment in our lives, in situations in our lives. And it's because we will not extend forgiveness to somebody that we feel doesn't deserve it. And frankly, sometimes they don't deserve it. There's people that will never ask your forgiveness that have hurt you with the worst, that will never come to you and say, I hurt you and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? If you're waiting for that, there's no place in this parable where it says, yeah, you know, you can wait a while for the forgiveness, you know, and if they don't extend it after, if they don't come ask forgiveness after a while, then you can, whatever. That's not what it says. We are expected to forgive because of what Jesus forgave us from. And until we do, we can, we literally, the enemy has legal right to torment us. Even as Christians, church, this is not for the world, the non-believers. This is for Christians. As Christians, if we harbor unforgiveness, the enemy has legal right to torment us. And all we owe, all we owe to get freed from that torment is to extend forgiveness. That's it. And for some of you may say, it's too hard. I can't do it. I can't, you don't know what they did to me. I can't do it. And For some of you, I would say, you know what? You're right. On your own, you cannot do it. But again, let's go back to James where he said, if you submit yourself to God, you can resist the devil and he has to flee from you. If we submit ourselves to God, 
He, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we will humble ourselves before him and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I want to forgive. I want so badly to be free from this. I want so badly to not let this sting me every single day for the rest of my life, but I just can't do it. I can't let go of it. I can't do it. I'm humbling myself before you. Will you help me? That's what God says. Yes, I will help you. I will give you the grace you need, the power you need to walk in freedom and to live the life that I've called you to live. And so it's a matter of us surrendering ourselves to God and saying, God, will you help me? And you know, when we extend that forgiveness, one of two things happens. Sometimes we're immediately released. We just, God just does a heart change in us and it's, it's gone. We never think about it ever again. And sometimes it's one of those things where we have to make a deliberate decision to say, okay, I'm going to forgive. I don't care what they did. I'm going to forgive. And then two hours later, it comes back at you again and you feel those same feelings. Then you have to forgive again. And you forgive again and you forgive again and again and again until you finally start to get to that place where you realize I'm only having to forgive him once a week now. And it used to be every couple hours. Next thing you know, you're like, I haven't thought about that situation in six months. And that's what God does for us. So we have to be diligent. We have to be intentional. If you don't feel an immediate change the second you forgive, that's okay sometimes. It's okay, but we have to work hard. We have to work hard. You know, Pastor Bonus shared many times one of the best ways to forgive people is to pray for them. And sometimes that can be hard to do. But the, if you, it's hard to be bitter and angry and resentful with someone that you're praying for. Now, you, can, you can't pray God's judgment on them. That doesn't work. That's the wrong kind of prayer. But, we, but praying for somebody will really help us to, to be able to, to release them and forgive them. And so the torment, the torture that we're receiving in some areas in our life, today, you can, it can be released completely today. The debt that you owe to get out of that prison is forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So finally, the last one, the last toxic thought that affects our relationships is insecurity and fear. Now, fear is so toxic to relationships because it plays on our emotions and it's usually it's irrational. Fear is one of those things we could preach on fear once a month. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much we as humans can struggle with fear and it's in all kinds of different ways. I'm not talking about the, the fear that, you know, comes from being in a haunted house. I'm talking about the fear of, of bad things happening to us or just assuming the worst is going to happen in our life. And, uh, and it, it consumes so many of us and it's something that cripples us so badly so often in our life. And it's so irrational. You know, 99.9% of the time, the fears we have never even happen, but it's based on something that we've seen maybe somebody else happen or, or we've just, we just automatically have this, this fear that comes in. We're maybe a little more predisposed to be that way. And, and you know, I, it breaks my heart when I hear people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a worrier. You know, I just, I just kind of struggle with fear. I just worry about things. That's just kind of how I'm wired because I love people so much. I just can't help but worry about them. I hate it when I hear that because that is not the truth. That is not how God has designed you. You were never designed to worry. Worry is never from God. Fear is never from God. That's a spirit straight out of the pit of hell that's meant to cripple you and keep you down every single time. We are not designed to live in fear and worry and anxiety and insecurity and all those things. Those are all from the devil. And he brings those on us and makes us, convinces us sometimes that, eh, that's just the way I am. It's not a big deal. I wish it wasn't like that, but it just is, you know. It keeps me honest. And that's not at all what God wants for us. In fact, let's see what, uh, what Paul said to Timothy in regards to that. I'm jumping down a little bit, tech guys. In 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, Paul says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So God has not given us a spirit of fear. Amen? We all understand that. We all believe that. God would never give us a spirit of fear. But what he has given us is a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. How many of you know, like, like it's, it's interesting to me when you read that, that Paul's talking about a sound mind. Like, it just seems a little random. Like, I've given you power and love. and Oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a sound mind too. It's because that's kind of the opposite of fear. Because that's what fear does. It, it takes that soundness of mind and makes it, makes you kind of crazy. You know, I, I was joking in the first service. There's, uh, the, the thing that fear can do to us and where it can take our mind is just, is really crazy. We, we, we as staff take turns locking up. The, the premises here during the week and every night, making sure it's locked and the alarms are set. And, you know, uh, when I take my turn, there's, you know, you're walking through these buildings and let me tell you at night when there's nobody in here and all the lights are off, this, this place would be kind of creepy, especially over there in building two, those offices down there. I mean, it's, it's really dark and it's a narrow hallway and there's, you know, doors all the way down through there. And I'm just gonna be honest with you. There's times I'm walking through there and I'm thinking, Oh, if somebody jumps out, they're not going to even have to touch me because I will drop dead on the spot. No question about it. And, uh, and, you, and you start letting your mind go there. And next thing you know, everything you see is a dude with a knife, you know? Like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's a light switch. You know, I mean, everything is just, and you literally, your mind can like, and I'll actually catch myself sometimes and I'll laugh. So I'm like, my goodness. You know, I'm like, man, somebody, I'm sure that somebody came off the interstate today and they're hiding in here and they're just waiting to, for me to come so they can pounce on me, you know? And, uh. Now, I just, I want you to know, I've just been very transparent with you today, <laughs> admitting as a grown man that I get scared when I lock up sometimes. Some of the other staff, you guys need to admit that too. Um, but that's just what fear does. It makes us so irrational. You know, like all of a sudden, every, every murderer in, in a, a 300 mile radius is in building two sitting in the offices waiting for me, you know? And, uh, and like I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm old enough, mature enough to laugh at it usually, even though I do tend to walk fast. Um, and it, but then when you get out, like get out of the building and get in my car and I realize, you know, it was ridiculous. And I'm like, man, that's crazy what fear can do, you know? And, and that's, that's a superficial thing, obviously, but that's what it does in our life too. That's what it does in our relationships. We allow that fear to fester. And we, allow, we start thinking the worst of everything. Everything that could happen to me that's bad is going to happen. You know, oh, if I put myself out there to this person, they're going to tear my heart into a thousand pieces, stomp on it as they leave, you know, because I've been hurt in the past. So I'm not, I'm not willing to go there because I'm just going to assume that everything that could happen that's bad is going to happen. And we allow that fear to come in. And Paul says there to Timothy, he says, you've not been given a spirit of fear. And at the beginning of the verse, he said, he reminds him to stir up the gift of God. One of the other versions says to fan the flame, fan the gift of God in your life. You know, have you ever been camping and you build a campfire and uh, when you're starting, you know, it's just little embers there and you take something, take a piece of wood or a newspaper or something, you start fanning it and you see those embers getting brighter and brighter and eventually it turns into a flame and it starts to consume the wood and you can throw wood on it. You can have a raging bonfire based off just a little tiny ember just by fanning it, just by taking something and blowing wind on it. That's what Paul's saying to do here. We have to be intentional about fanning the flame of God in our life. We have to say, no, I am not going to allow the spirit of fear to cover me, to ruin my life, to, to dictate how I live my life. I'm not going to let that have its way with me. I'm going to fan the flame of God, the gift of God that's in my life, that's of power and of love and a sound mind. And I'm going to live according to that and not to the other one, right? Woo! Mm. 
I love it. I love it. The word of God is so good. There's so, it's so much good meat and food in the word of God for us, but we have got to be intentional. We have got to get that, those things out of it and apply it to our lives. We can't just say a quick prayer and expect God to just flood us with all these great things and we're just going to float through life. We have to be willing to fight the good fight. And we have to get to the point where we say, no, I'm not going to allow these things in my life to affect my life and continue to be toxic and take me down these roads that I, don't, I know God doesn't want me to go and I don't even want to go. And we have to get to that place where we're willing to take a stand and say, I'm not going to let the enemy cheat me out of the things God wants in my life. I'm not going to allow it. And if you're not willing to fight, then you're, you're going to continue to get beat up by the enemy. He's just going to slap you around. Every once in a while you get mad and you might do something. But if you don't live a lifestyle of fighting against the enemy, then you're going to lose. But we've got all the tools we need to win. All the tools that we need to win. We have the spirit of God that wants to fight our battles for us. If we will humble ourselves, if we will forgive, if we will fan the flame of God in our lives, we can walk victorious in all of our relationships. Without question, all of our relationships. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would. I'll ask the, the prayer leaders to come. And if you need prayer for anything this morning, whatever it might be, nothing's off limits. You can come up and they'll be happy to pray for you. You can find a place at the altar, pray by yourself if you like. And uh, I encourage you to do that. Take advantage of this. We'd love to pray for you and, and lift you up and, and uh, stand with you. But and I'm gonna pray for, I wanna pray for the church today. If, if any of those three areas, if it's, if it's pride, selfishness, if it's unforgiveness, bitterness, or if it's insecurity and fear, I want to pray for you. And you can, you can come here to the center if you want, or I, I could just, uh, you could stay there. I'll pray, I'll pray for the whole church. But I, if, it, if you're struggling with one of those, you really need a revelation of God to be able to deal with those. If, you, if you've heard this today and said, you know, I really want that. I really want to be humble. Uh, I really want to forgive. I really want to find my identity in Christ and fan that flame in my life, but I just don't know how to do that. I need a revelation from God. Uh, then I want you to just raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. You just raise your hand right where you are. I want to pray for you today. There's no shame in it. We all deal with it. We all struggle with it at times in our life, but we have to be willing to humble ourselves and be real because God gives grace to the humble. I want the grace of God in my life more than anything else without question. Hallelujah. We serve such a wonderful God. He's so good and gracious to us. If we surrender ourselves to him, we surrender and tell Jesus, have your way in my life. It's a scary prayer, but it's worth it. So let's pray. I want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you that your spirit speaks truth and speaks life to us, Lord. God, I thank you that your desire for us is that we would thrive in healthy relationships. I thank you that that is your plan. God, help us to walk in it. Lord, help us to trust you enough to walk in the truth that you have so, so beautifully given to us. Father, I pray for a revelation for all those today that need a revelation of your love to be able to, to walk in humility, to come against pride, to walk in forgiveness, to come against the resentment, the unforgiveness that torments us in our life. And to walk in identity of Christ and to stand against fear and insecurity. 
God, we pray for revelation for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would help us to walk in that. Lord, we need you. Without you, we cannot do this. Your word says to be filled with the spirit and then we can submit to each other. God, we wanna, we wanna walk humbly so that we can stand against the enemy and then he must flee. God, I pray you'd help us in that today, Lord. Help us, Jesus. Help us by your spirit. Lord, empower us. We need more of your spirit, Lord. More of you in our lives. More of you and less of us. We surrender to you, God, to your ways. We surrender. We give you our lives, Lord. Have your way in us. Have your way in me, Lord. Have your way. Have your way. Because I know your way is so much better than my way, Lord. Help us to get past the fear of surrendering ourselves to you because of what we may have seen from from other relationships that that cause us to fear giving ourselves to you, God. Help us to get past that fear and to, to fan the flame in our lives of your spirit, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God, we thank you for that today, Lord. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives. Thank you that you paid the price. Thank you that you were not willing for us to just stay in our sin, but you came and paid the price and forgave us of all of our debt so that we could know you, so that we could have a relationship with you, so we could know the love of the Father, that we could come to you with a spirit of sonship where we would say, Abba, Father, we can call you our daddy. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to live lives worthy of the calling that you put on us. Lord, help us to live lives that will, that, will, that will bring worship and honor to the lamb that was slain. May you receive the reward of your suffering, God, in each one of our lives, Lord. We give you all the praise and the glory for God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen.